Hello and welcome back to another week in the world of Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings, and you can find me on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs, and I'd love to see you there, where you can also recommend future guests for future shows, and there's more from the amazing team at Sasta. If you cannot get enough of all things Sasta and have read every piece of content on Sasta.com and wondered how you can train your team on Sasta's best practices, well, Sasta Pro solves that problem. Sign up today on sastapro.com forward slash podcast and let Sasta train your team for you automatically each week sending your team a highly actionable lesson meant to help you grow faster and drive discussions on how to improve it really is such an amazing platform being built there and on the theme of pros i'm thrilled to welcome a pro in the world of cloud computing as one of the data gurus of the industry and i'm thrilled to welcome christina shen partner at bessemer venture partners to the show today now bessemer is one of the world's leading venture funds with a portfolio including the likes of pinterest skype box linkedin yelp and many more incredible companies and as for Christina, she serves on the boards of Double Dutch, Glint, Retail Solutions, and Zeusk, and is also a board observer with Rainforest QA, Vidyard, Gainsight, and Service Titan. And Christina is also one of the best data gurus as the co-author of Bessemer's State of the Cloud 2016 and 2017, and Bessemer 10 Laws of Cloud. They really are personal favorites of mine. Phenomenal reads, and I've attached links to the show notes. And due to Christina's incredible success, she's been named to both Forbes and Business Insiders 30 Under 30 in 2014. 14 and 2016 respectively. And I'd also have to say a huge thank you to both Jeremy Levine and Byron Dieter for some fantastic questions provided today for Christina. I really do so appreciate that. However, before we dive into the show today with Christina, another product your team will thank you for is Full Contact, the largest cloud-based identity resolution and insights platform with an identity graph of over a billion people providing the information and insights to help companies identify and build more authentic connections with customers and prospects. And from June the 6th to June the 8th in Denver, Colorado, Full Contact is bringing together leading minds from the worlds of data and marketing for the Connect 2018 conference with incredible panels, keynotes, and networking opportunities, and featuring speakers from world-class companies such as Google, Oracle, Nestle, Deloitte, and more. Plus, listeners to the Sasta podcast have the very special opportunity to purchase a ticket for half price. Just go to fullcontact.com forward slash connect and enter the Sasta code, which is Sasta50 in the discount code box. And thank Thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Volution. Volution is an all-in-one e-commerce platform focused on making it easy for independent SMBs to sell. Its 30,000 active merchants have delivered more than 185 million orders, worth $28 billion in cumulative sales through Volution e-commerce websites. And you can learn more at Volution.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, just like Volution did, then visit WePay.com forward slash SASTA. And WePay's got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash Sasta. But you've heard quite enough of this dulcet English accent, so now I'm thrilled to hand over to Christina Shen, partner at Bessemer Venture Partners. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Well, Christina, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. I've heard so many wonderful things from Byron and Jeremy, so thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Not at all, but I want to kick off today with a little on you and your foray into the world of SaaS and more specifically cloud investing. So what was your start, Christina? So I've 
actually been in the cloud SaaS investing area probably for over a decade. I started my career in the investment banking world at Goldman and Credit Suisse doing cloud investing actually off the balance sheet as well as looking at cloud IPOs and M&A. And I just fell in love with the category. I think a lot of it comes from joining the workforce and realizing, wow, these products are horrible. There's got to be a better solution. And I watched this cloud wave companies transitioning from on-premise to cloud and felt that this is something that I wanted to dedicate my early career on. So a decade later, I'm still investing in cloud SaaS and we're only 3% penetrated in total IT spend today and 30% penetrated on the SaaS spend. So I think we've got still quite a long way to go. And speaking of kind of your foray there, I did speak to, and I want to start with this actually, your partner Byron Dieter, and he mentioned that you've built up this incredible reputation as a cloud benchmark guru. And so he asked, first, how does that help you evaluate deals? Let's start with that. You know, I think I'm just such a data nerd that I get obsessed with getting to know all the data out there that I can collect at any given time. And I think that's really helped me over time because a lot of venture capital is pattern recognition, particularly on the SaaS side, understanding all the different types of go-to-markets, business models, what are the right conversion metrics in the, the sales funnel. I think that's really helped me pattern recognize what businesses have real velocity, especially on the later stage. And so I try to use that to my advantage. And I use that not only to help our portfolio companies think through benchmarks and what other companies are doing, but also when assessing and finding new companies, you know, I think one of the key things is to look at is a real velocity in the business. And sometimes that's hidden deeper in the numbers as opposed to just the top line revenue. Can I ask, when you say velocity, what do you mean by that if we drill one layer deeper? Yeah, if you drill one layer deeper, you know, I think a lot of people will look at revenue or ARR growth. And it's definitely one great way to look at a velocity of a business of how quickly they're growing and if they're hitting that inflection point. But sometimes they're hitting that inflection point before it hits revenue or ARR. Sometimes it's in how quickly their leads are growing, how well their SQLs or sales qualified leads are closing. Sometimes it's hidden in, you know, how well they're upselling their products to their existing customers. And I think it's actually really important to go one layer deeper to those additional metrics and capabilities to understand kind of the true health of a business and velocity of a business in the future other than just top-line revenue. No, absolutely. I mean, speaking of kind of the metrics there that we use to assess businesses, often in SaaS and investing in SaaS, especially on the evaluation side, it comes down to multiples. I'm intrigued because you've said to me before that private SaaS multiples are not expensive if you use a new framework. So before we touch on the new framework, what's fundamentally wrong maybe or not accurate, so to speak, with the existing way we value SaaS companies through multiples. Well, in order to address that, let me take you back a little bit, because if you looked at the way that SaaS companies were valued 10 years ago, a public company that was growing 30% probably got a five times revenue multiple. And a private company that was growing, say, 100% also got a five times revenue multiple because there was this illiquidity discount for private companies. You just didn't get paid for your growth. And in fact, you tended to get paid at a lower multiple because you were private. If you look at today, private companies are even growing faster than that. Most private companies at the early stages are growing anywhere from 100% to 300%. And, you know, I've recently even heard some cases of companies growing 1,000%, which is just incredible. And so private companies are fundamentally growing faster now. And it's for many reasons. One is SaaS adoption. You know, 10 years ago, SaaS adoption was less than 10%. Today, it's over 30%. So there's just this general acceptance that cloud software is here to stay. And particularly in the enterprise, they're now comfortable and willing to adopt cloud software. The second is really people like myself. VC interest in cloud companies 
companies is really high because we've discovered it's just fundamentally a great business model. And so the amount of capital that's pouring into the cloud ecosystem has also enabled valuations to change and stabilize to where they probably should be. And so now if we look at private company multiples, uh, you know, I think a lot of people talk about an arbitrary 10 times ARR multiple, but I would even argue that that's just not the right benchmark to look at multiples because growth is such a big factor in determining the future value of a business. If you're growing 100% versus 300%, you should get paid for that growth. And so what I personally look at is I look at an ARR multiple divided by the growth rate. And the reason I do that is because you should get paid for growing faster. So a simple example would be if you're looking at a 10x ARR multiple, but the company is growing 150%, that's a 6.7x ARR multiple. If you look at where private multiples have been historically, if you look at the last five years, a 7x ARG or ARR to growth multiple is actually where the market pays. So basically, if you're growing faster, you should be paid higher than a 10x ARR multiple. Kanas, we mentioned the explosion of capital going into the space. I'm intrigued. How do you think about capital efficiency and the potential maybe distortion in that model where companies can, with the huge amounts of funding, buy their growth, so to speak, even in the earliest stages today? And how important does capital efficiency play for you in evaluating companies? So for us, capital efficiency is incredibly important. So we look at a particular metric, what we call BVP efficiency. And so for a company that's less than 20 million revenue, we look at whether their net new ARR is greater or less than how much they burned that same time period. So a simple example would be if a company grew from 10 million to 20 million, that means they added 10 million of new net new ARR. But if they burned 20 million to do that in the same time period, they're only a 0.5 on an efficiency score. And we tend to try to aim for a closer to a one. Because the idea is that you should be spending less each month on what you're burning to acquire that additional new revenue. And so it's actually one of the key metrics that we look at, particularly for Series B and onwards companies. Would you agree with Jason Lemkin in the early days? He says that when you're starting to spend on acquiring customers, just get your marketing people to earn a dollar back for every dollar they spend because blended, you'll actually get double or more, so to speak. So I very much agree with Jason. I highly respect him. But we tend to look at the full sales and marketing costs as opposed to just the marketing cost. We think you should look at it from a fully loaded basis because it's what your marketing team does to generate new leads and generate demand gen, what your sales team does in order to do outbound sales or close deals, and also what your customer success team does in order to keep your customers happy as well as potentially drive upsell or sell more book of business to your existing customers. So when we talk about it, we tend to say for every dollar you spend, you should get a dollar back in terms of net new ARR. And so we call that a CAC payback. So we try to say for the average SaaS company, your CAC payback should be around 12 months or around one year. But that actually varies pretty dramatically if you sell to large enterprise customers, which have higher retention, or if you sell to SMB customers who have lower retention. No, absolutely. I mean, kind of with these frameworks in mind, one that I always hear cited is the rule of 40. How do you analyze and think about the rule of 40 today and in this environment that we're in? So we think a lot about the rule of 40. I think it is probably more addressable for later stage companies. But the rule of 40, for those who don't know, is basically saying that your percent year-over-year growth plus your percent burn should be 40 or higher. So if you're growing 100%, you can, bore, you can burn 60%. If you're growing 40%, then you can be a break-even business. Um, but we have a slight twist on that, actually, because that rule of 40 is very true for public companies. If you look at the top 50 public cloud companies, rule of 40 is 
is actually how the companies tend to be valued. So people who are more efficient are valued more highly. But if you look at the private companies, we benchmark this actually right before you go public, two years before you go public, actually it's more like a rule of 70. And if it's one year before you go public, it's actually more like a rule of 50. And it's because private companies are growing so much faster that it actually helps them in their efficiency score. I spoke to Tom Tungus the other day, and he said that even for public companies, growth is the number one determinant of value driving at that public stage. Would you agree with him kind of thinking about that? We spoke about growth and the importance of it at the early stage, but would you agree with it as the primary importance at that IPO stage? It definitely is. Growth is always the number one driver of value because fundamentally, if you're growing more quickly in the next year or two, you will be a larger business. And so it always is the number one driver. We see at different time points in the public markets, efficiency is the number two driver. And then the number three tends to be retention. So businesses that have over 100% net retention tend to significantly be valued higher than companies that have a lower retention rate. No, absolutely. I mean, we've we've spoken uh, about early stage, about A and B and pre-IPO there. But I do want to focus today on two stages being the A and the B round. Starting on the A round, we often hear that seed rounds where the founders must sell the vision, A rounds where you kind of show traction and fundamentally product market fit. I'm intrigued for you working kind of exclusively at A, B, and C. What are the core elements that you've found Series A investors focus on? I think that's right. So I think at the Series A level, we're focused on how big is this market opportunity? We're focused on, does this company have an unfair advantage to win? And when I say unfair advantage to win, that could be anything from, are they first to market? And can they be the thought leader to create this category? Or is there something that is differentiated or defensible in their products? Say it's a network effect or a data play that enables them to succeed over their competitors. That's what we tend to look for at the Series A. Sometimes we also make a velocity bet. So, you know, if a company really is growing from one to five or one to, you know, six or seven million in a year, something is just working and great founders can figure that out. So that's what we tend to do at the Series A. Um, at the Series B, you know, we do start to look, in addition to the market and competition and the unfair advantage that they have, we also start to look at these additional metrics that we're talking about as well, because we want to understand if this business can scale from a go-to-market standpoint. Can they have a reasonable cap payback, say 12 months for the average SaaS company? They should have enough data to see how retention and churn is performing. And so we want to make sure their customer base is very healthy. And so, you know, there is a pretty big delineation between Series A and Series B. But actually, the one thing we will say is because we're such a large fund, we're actually always focused on believing that when we make the investment, we believe the company could be an IPO or public company. Now, obviously, that's not always the case, but we want to believe that that market opportunity is large enough for them to be. No, absolutely. You said there about the velocity. I'm intrigued with you being, as you said, such a data geek at the beginning. Have you found commonalities between companies both in time and kind of duration in getting to that 1 to 10 million in ARR when you look across the data set? Yeah, so I think that the best cloud companies can get from 1 to 10 million ARR in 2 or 3 years. And we're seeing that to be pretty consistent. If you look at the public companies and when they were early stage, we were early investors in Twilio, in Shopify, and LinkedIn. And so we looked at a lot of the data of these companies when they were early stage. The best in class companies go from one to 10 in about two years. I would say the average public cloud company gets there in about three years. And I'd say very good cloud companies can get there in about four years, which means you're doubling basically every single year. I always find that founders tend to spend a lot of time on air or especially when they're approaching rounds, wondering what VCs expect at different stages. If we focus exclusively on the ARR metric, how do you think about what's required at the A round versus the B round in your expectations, generally speaking? So I think some investors will throw 
out some number ranges, we actually try really hard not to throw out an AR number range because it actually depends so much on what's going on in the competitive market dynamic, how big that market opportunity is. And so I know a lot of investors will say you should get to at least a million in AR for your Series A. But I've seen actually a very, very wide range. We've funded many Series A companies pre-revenue because we found the team and CEO to be very compelling and the market opportunity to be a unique opportunity. And there's many times that we funded a Series A when they were over three or four million ARR because we wanted to see the velocity in the business and it might have been a slightly more competitive market. And so it's quite a wide range, but I would say it's anywhere between that pre-revenue and a couple million ARR tends to be that traditional Series A level. Is there a level for Series B where really there is a minimum bar given the data and the time that they've had really to operate and build out the product and team? I wouldn't say there's a minimum bar, but we are looking to make sure that the core unit economics work. So going back to those numbers like, can they drive reasonable sales efficiency with a 12-month CAC payback? Is retention healthy and within their customer base? Just because at a Series B, you have enough data over a certain time period in order to assess these metrics. And so we're really looking at the health and scalability of the business more so than a specific ARR number. So sometimes I've done Series B deals where it's been as low as one or two million in revenue. Uh, actually, I've done some that have been pre-revenue, but that's a little bit more rare. And you know, as high as five to 10 million in revenue. So the range can be quite broad. Yeah, no, absolutely. You spoke about the core unit econ there. I'm intrigued. Where do you find most struggle in really fine-tuning that core unit economics? So I think a couple areas. So I think one of the biggest struggles I find is particularly on the sales efficiency side. So if you're selling to really, really small SMB companies or you're selling to really large enterprises, you know, your unit economics may not always be consistent from every month or every quarter because you're just an early business and you have to normalize across multiple months or quarters. And so I find with SMB-based businesses, sometimes the struggle is to scale up the sales orgs at a cost-efficient rate because you're charging much less for your product, let's say a couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars every single year. And sometimes it can be hard to make your unit economics work in the first couple months as you're ramping up your sales reps. The same becomes true on the enterprise side because you're selling really, really large deals, let's say hundreds of thousand dollar deals in a year. Realistically, as an early stage business, you might have a month or a quarter where you don't sell a customer yet. And that can really screw up your economics in a given time period as well. And so that's one thing I see companies struggle with is they're not quite sure the predictability of their business yet because they may not have a very average customer base. And that's where we like to sit down with companies and help them think through it and normalize that data and help them think through benchmarks so they can understand what's working, what's not working. Can I ask, you mentioned the enterprise play there of selling very large contracts when evaluating really early stage businesses that you'd maybe like to really keep tracking. Are there elements that really excite you, be it number of pilots signed, be it engagement within pilot, be it kind of brand of company signed as a pilot? Are there elements that would really excite you given the fact that at, say, C when you're evaluating the sales cycles are so long so i definitely love to see when there's a velocity of increasing pilot and so if you sign two pilots this month three pilots the next month etc that's really helpful to see because that's basically your top of the funnel pipeline the second thing that's really exciting to see is when they're in these pilots how engaged the customer is and how quickly the product spreads across the organization and the third is at the really early stages we actually love to talk to the pilot customers and so i 
I think there's a big difference when you hear from a pilot customer, this is a great product, but I'm still figuring things out. Or say, I can't live without this product. I need to buy and sign this contract immediately because this has transformed my business. And so we love hearing those types of conversations. Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I do want to though delve into my favorite element of any interview though, Christina, being the 60 second faster. Essentially a quick fire round where I say a short statement and you give me your immediate thoughts. About 60 seconds per one. How does that sound? <laughs> that sounds good. Okay, so question from Jeremy Levine, your partner. What would you like your reputation or legacy, so to speak, to be as an investor in 20 years time or so? Ooh, that is a good question. You know, I would say I would want to be a lasting investor. You know, I think a lot of people have had great successes and had great one or two hit big deals. Um, but I want to be known as a lasting investor. You know, I want to not only succeed in the SaaS ecosystem, which I spent a lot of time today, but be multi-sector, multi-stage, and be someone who's known to have left their mark in the industry as someone who can accomplish many different types of deals. And so that's what I would say. Jeremy was asking me directly. What keeps you up at night, Christina? Gosh. We have this thing called the anti-portfolio, which is all the deals that we've missed. That's what keeps me up at night because we're making rapid decisions all the time. And fundamentally, we say no to companies 99% of the time. So it really keeps me up at night that... I might be passing or saying no to a company that could be the next LinkedIn or Shopify or, or Twilio. So uh, I wish uh, I wish it didn't keep me up at night as much as it does currently. Tell me, what's worse, seeing it and passing or not seeing it at all? I think not seeing it at all is worse because you always want that at-bat or opportunity. But I think it's more painful when you pass on an incredible company. Yeah, no, I agree with you for sure. Uh, tell me, the biggest mentor to you and the most memorable takeaway from that relationship? You know, so actually the biggest mentor to me has been Byron Dieter at my own firm. He took me in when I was quite junior in this industry five years ago and really took me under his wing and treated me like, you know, it was an apprenticeship type model. And so I've always really looked up to him, really appreciated his help. But I would say what I appreciate more and, and was memorable about him is, you know, we cross over from the business and personal side. You know, Byron actually helped my husband and myself get engaged. And he was part of that tricking me into story uh, when, when I was getting my surprise. And so we've got this great both professional and personal relationship. I mean, that really is going above and beyond from Byron. I love that story. But I do want to finish <laughs> today on what do you know now, Christina, that you wish you had known that decade ago when you entered the world of SaaS and cloud investing? So I wish I had known how hard it would be. <laughs> so I think, you know, outside in, right, we've looked at the investing world. But I always thought it was thrilling and exciting. I mean, you always get to be at the front edge of technology, uh, which it very much is. But, you know, even five years in this industry and being a partner at the firm, uh, you still do a lot of grunt work and you still have to chase and find all your deals and constantly prove yourself. And so, you know, I wish I'd known those challenges up front, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I, I really love this job and love this industry. So it's been an exciting five years and I look forward to building my 20 year legacy uh, as you asked earlier. Well, I cannot wait to see the 20 year legacy. As I said, I heard the most phenomenal things both from Jeremy and from Byron. So thank you so much for joining me today, Christina. Thank you so much. This is so much fun. What a fantastic guest Christina was to have on the show there, and you really must check out some of her writings and work, and you can find that on Twitter, at Shenster. As I said, that really is a must. Likewise, we'd love to see you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can do that on Instagram, at hdebbings1996, with two Bs. It'd be fantastic to see you there. But before we leave you today, do not forget to check out Full Contact, the largest cloud-based identity resolution and insights platform, with an identity graph of over a billion people, providing that information and insight to help 
help companies identify and build more authentic connections, both with customers and prospects. And from June the 6th to June the 8th in Denver, Colorado, Full Contact are bringing together leading minds from the worlds of data and marketing for the Connect 2018 conference with incredible panels, keynotes, and networking opportunities, and featuring speakers from world-class companies such as Google, Oracle, Nestle, and more. Plus, listeners to this podcast have the very special opportunity to purchase a ticket for half price. Just go to fullcontact.com forward slash connect and enter the code SASTA50 in the discount code box. And again, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SAS, Volution. Volution is the all-in-one e-commerce platform focused on making it easy for independent SMBs to sell, with over 30,000 active merchants delivering more than 185 million orders worth $28 billion in cumulative sales through Volution e-commerce websites. And you can learn more at volution.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, just like Volution did, head to wepay.com forward slash SASTA. They've got this great cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash SASTA. And as always, I've so appreciated your support today, and I cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.